This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Tom Smith, Smith attended the Air Force Academy before becoming a combat rescue officer, where he led a combat pararescue team tasked with flying into hot landing zones to rescue fellow military personnel and civilians. He served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Tom Smith, a former captain in the United States Air Force as a combat rescue officer for Air Force PJs. You know, what led me to the Air Force Academy is first and foremost is being a gullible uh, 10-year-old that lived in Alaska. But more importantly, you know, my mom and dad divorced when I was five and had a really strong mom, lived with her since I was five. We lived in Florida first, then she moved up. We moved up to Tennessee for work, and then she's super adventuresome. So we moved to Alaska for a couple of years. And when I was in Alaska, we just got there, uh, just moved in, and we were staying at a bed and breakfast while we looked for a place to stay. And obviously, have all kinds of bases up in Alaska. And at our bed and breakfast one morning at the table, there was these two guys in uh, fighter suits or fighter outfits with their hat on, had these giant academy rings, and they were just, you know, the coolest thing a 10-year-old had ever seen. So asked what they did. They told how they were fighter pilots, of course, and how awesome they were. I saw their big academy rings, and I said, hey, what are those? They told me about the Air Force Academy and that they paid you to go to school, and they gave you some great training. And I took it hook, line, and sinker kind of deal. <laughs> I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. I was really excited from that. And since I was 10, I kind of, uh, you know, my mom poured into me. I was able to focus everything on that. 
And so high school, you know, did every little thing I could from Civil Air Patrol, from sports. And I was so naive that um, the only place I applied to was the Air Force Academy, <laughs> no other places. And so March 31st, at least when I was then, was the last day you could find out before if you're accepted or not. And so it was like mid-March. And I was like, oh, my God, I made the worst decision ever. I haven't earned anything back. Like, what am I going to do? And my backup plan was actually to go work on the crab boats up in Alaska for that summer if I had did not get in. And March 31st, I got that phone call saying, hey, you're accepted. And so, you know, young buck, uh, 18, went to Air Force Academy basic training. And you get humbled quite quickly about how, you know, you cannot deal under stress when somebody's yelling at you. And I was definitely a big goober and didn't know what was going on for the first couple of months. But, and I very specifically remember uh, I snuck, I'm not always the best rule follower, which is part of the reason why I went Air Force Special Operations, <laughs> but I snuck a phone in your freshman year uh, to the Air Force Academy. And I called my other buddies that were at the University of Tennessee, you know, and it's like Friday night. And I'm like, hey, guys, like, what are you doing? They're like, oh, we're having a blast. We're doing this and that. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, it's midnight. I'm ironing my underwear because I have a 5 a.m. Saturday morning expecting with a big parade afterwards. Like these fighter pods in Alaska never told me about this aspect of the Air Force Academy. But at the end of the day, you know, such a wonderful opportunity uh, to really focus in with people from all across the United States. I went to high school in East Tennessee, and it was predominantly Caucasian. And to go to the Air Force Academy with people from all over the U.S. Uh, was a wonderful experience. And I was on my path to being a pilot. I got really lucky to get my pilot slot uh, my junior year. And I started flying single engines uh, for their, their senior year. And, you know, my roommate was also on the pilot track. And he came home every night and just talked about how much he loved all that stuff. And I was like, I hate driving. Like I, you know, like my back hurts sitting in there for so long. I get bored really easily. I probably have ADD. And I felt bad that I almost had taken a pilot slot from somebody else that probably had the same passion as my buddy, Dave. And luckily at the same time, I had this kind of gut feeling. And so they have this opportunity at the Academy for people that want to cross train into other services, especially special operations, whether it's the Navy or army. And so I got involved with that program within like two months. I'm like, this is it. I love small teams. I love that camaraderie that you have to, that, that really difficult trying circumstances kind of put you in. And so I gave up my pilot slot and, you know, I hadn't gone through selection yet. And so the big thing that I had was um, I got maintenance officer for a year and a half uh, while I was going through my selection for, to try to be a combo rescue officer on the Air Force side. And so I'll pause there, but that kind of led me up to my decision to cross over. And overall, I'm really thankful for my year and a half as a maintenance officer. A, I got to go to Rammstein in Germany, and that really opened up my eyes, just being stationed over overseas and getting work with uh, multinational partner forces. But uh, most importantly, you know, the big challenge is a uh, maintenance officer. You know, there's 80 young enlisted underneath a second lieutenant. And so that massive challenge kind of from day one is something I, I really respected and was definitely really hard as a second lieutenant, which, you know, some folks in the Air Force don't get that experience from day one to try to lead 80 people. And so overall, really glad I had that weird year and a half to kind of uh, try other opportunities of leadership in the Air Force. Great question on, you know, the concept of, of fighter pilots and, you know, the concept 
And overall, the leadership there, I think, holds right where, hey, you know, back in the day, you have to be your, you know, in enemy territory and like your your own person. You got to make your own decisions. And there's a lot of weight there. And but no, as we go to different environments, you know, now it's a lot more collaborative. You got to build teams, even as a fighter pilot. You know, you're leading multiple people, multiple units. And sometimes the squadron commander, you know, you've been leading for 20 years. And that might be the first time you actually have to do broad leadership, uh, not only at the peer-to-peer level, which, you know, a lot of fighter pilots have been doing for 10 years, but never now you have a peer subordinate type of relationship. And that's a really big challenge that I got experience as a maintenance officer. And that's, that's that concept that I loved from, I played rugby at the academy and it was like, hey, one of the most difficult types of leadership is peer-to-peer, but also that peer subordinate where you got to show up and you got to walk the walk and especially really not hiding from difficult challenges, but going through those really difficult times with your enlisted. And like, they get to see who you really are. You know, you can't hide anything (laughs) um, during those really difficult uh, challenges and training environments. And so, you know, luckily I had a very close friend circle and all of them are pilots to this day. And they kind of understood I was the, uh, I was the odd person in the group, but they understood the why. So personally, Never really experienced any pushback, but I still think the Air Force is facing a massive challenge on really not preparing its officers at a young age, whether, you know, in the Army, Marine Corps, from day one, you're surrounded with 40, 60, 80 uh, young Marines or young soldiers, and you have to really rely on your senior NCOs to get you through. And you come into this, you know, makes you put your humility on quite quick. You know, when I came onto the the teams on special operations, my first NCO had deployed 10 times and, you know, I'm not leading this person. You know, I'm coming in and being of assistance, but you're really coming in. I really hope you decide to mentor me, senior NCO. And like that doesn't happen, I would argue, on the pilot side for at least until like a major, if not lieutenant colonel. And I think that has some implications when you are almost 40 years old. Now you have to become squadron commander to actually try to do subordinate leadership correct. I think we do a disservice to that. And so I think that's why the Air Force has stumbled sometimes with high-level leadership decisions because we get put at a very young age, especially fighter pilots, on, hey, you can do all of this yourself. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're starting to flip the script on having to learn peer subordinate leadership. So I actually had a big stumble, which was a big growth point. But, um, you know, I always say I have some Irish blood. And so I always have had some uh, like to get in fights when when needed with rugby. Um, And so I actually was only supposed to be a maintenance officer for six months. And so on the transition to special operations, they have something called phase zero, which is basically just for the officers. You go out at our time, you go up to Fairchild uh, Air Force Base in Spokane, Washington, you go through a week of kind of like hell week. They make you rock all day. They do a whole lot of stuff in the pool, underwaters. They black out the pool. It's completely dark. You had to swim stuff in your full uniform and our BDUs at the time. And just all kinds of stuff to really gut check you to make sure, hey, do you really want to do this? Because the next time you're going to be doing this is with all of your enlisted during your selection. And so, you know, my selection was me, another officer, and 90 other young men at that point in time. And so that was that one week. It's called phase zero. And the very last day you were going through our selection. We hadn't slept for a couple of days. We're exhausted. 
And uh, one of the officers I ended up getting a fight with because I felt he did some things wrong toward the other people and the teammate. <laughs> and so um, I, I survived phase zero, but uh, I got asked to come back again six months later, which was a massive blow because I had to go back to Germany and a maintenance officer. I'll never forget Captain Ryder. And if he's out there, God bless him. But I just remember his conversation. It was like, you know, Tom, just some people aren't cut out for special operations. You know, we're glad to have you back. And that was just like a hot knife to the heart. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, like I got to get my emotions under control um, without a doubt. You know, I can't just be focused on physical. I just can't focus on mental. It's got to be a comprehensive leadership, you know? And so that six months was, was really humbling and also got to continue to grow as a maintenance officer. And so I went back in the fall and survived phase zero and got picked up. And so it's a great thing they do for officers. Then we got relocated out to Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. And you get a couple months to actually train up before you go to our big selection course down in Texas. And so we showed up in February of 2009 to my uh, indoctrination course, they call it. And it's just eight weeks of, of, you know, each special operations, whether Navy SEALs or Green Beret, they have their own torture devices, you know, Green Beret love to deprive you of your sleep and just have you ruck a lot in the mountains. Navy SEALs have sleep deprivation and really cold water. PJs, pararescue in our career field, they have a pool and they love to try to drown you in that pool. And the whole thing is trying to get you calm and to relax. Um, you know, with oxygen deprivation, your brain starts freaking out. And so it tries to get you to, to calm down, focus on your task at hand. And so we started with 90 folks uh, with two officers, and we we finished two years later. I graduated with six of those individuals. I got really lucky. I didn't get hurt. My knees and ankles held together, and uh, just had a great team around me. But we go to indoctrination course, which is just like kind of like selection course. Then after that, each person kind of has their own route. But then I went to Airborne Army Airborne for three weeks down in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, and all of us spoiled Air Force. We call it Air Force Appreciation Month <laughs> uh, because you go down there and the barracks are not what we call Air Force uh, standards. And I told my enlisted guys, I'm like, do not share with the Army folks that we are getting additional pay because it's called hardship <laughs> because we are staying in different barracks. We got like 150 bucks a month uh, during because uh, we were staying at substandard barracks. But, uh, you know, great experience, obviously, uh, going through Fort Benning and Airborne is historic, to say the least. Then after that, we go to a host of schools from Halo, so uh, Free Fall School. We go to Combat Dive School down in Florida, we go to Survival School, and then we have kind of our finishing school back in Kirtland Air Force Base. And that's where we really, our, our enlisted guys go through all of our medical training and pause right there. During when I was in, it was still all male. And I know they're making that transition um, to obviously be more inclusive, which I think is a great move. You know, our PJs are getting their butts kicked with multiple appointments back to back. We need the best and brightest, no matter where you come from or your sex. So I'm glad that the special operations is really starting to grow on who they're including in that. But at my time, it was just guys going through my selection at my unit. And so they go through their own paramedic training for about six months. The officers kind of go through some more uh, tactical commander, ground commander force training, and then we graduate. So the officer's training is about two years. The enlisted PJs are about two and a half because they have that additional medical training. And so then you get to your unit, and there's several units across the United States. I went down to Valdosta, Georgia, Moody Air Force Base, 
And then you have to go through another four months of green team, which is like, hey, everything learned in the schoolhouse, don't do that. This is how you do it in the real world. And then finally, I was ready for my first deployment in 2011, where I went to Iraq as we were closing down Iraq for the first time. So kind of three worlds, kind of. And so we call it the Big Blue Air Force, which is the traditional mission, which was Vietnam all the way to the Gulf War. And then a little bit in the beginning of Afghanistan, Iraq was if a pilot gets shot down, you know, pararescue and called the combat search and rescue mission, like we are going to come and get you, whether we're working with our Hilo partners or H860s or our C-130s, if we're going to parachute in, but we will come get you, we will patch you up and get you to the hospital and make sure you get back to safe territory. That's like the bread and butter mission of uh, Air Force Pararescue. That was an enlisted job since its beginning, but in the early 2000s, they're saying, hey, we're starting to stay on the ground a little bit longer. You know, it was helicopter pilots, God bless them, were the uh, commanding officers for PJs. Um, but now we're starting to stay on the ground a little bit longer. Let's have a different type of officer. And so that's when they created combat rescue officers uh, in the early 2000s. And we call it Crow for short. So Crow and PJ, which are probably some some weird acronyms in the world, but go Air Force and its acronyms. And uh, but since 2000, especially when I deployed, the mission set really changed a lot where the insurgency, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, realized, hey, sadly, if we can kill people, but if we can wound people, then actually call in medevac and try to down a medevac bird, that's going to be a lot more of a PR thing. And so, uh, you know, Army medevacs, wonderful dust off, has a great mission. But when you call them in, you have to call in one helicopter and then you got to have a two ship, like Apache, for example, attack helicopters to protect them. And so they said, hey, we have these other assets that are in theater in the mid 2000s called Air Force PJs are sitting on alert with HH-60s. They do not have a big red cross on them. So by Geneva Conventions, we're allowed to carry a whole lot of weaponry, you know, uh, mini guns and uh, 50 cals on our side. And we're just two helicopters. And so we started taking a lot of high risk medevac missions in Iraq and Afghanistan and across uh, the theater. And so when I was in, that's almost all they did in Afghanistan and Iraq was if you got shot and it was high risk, it was probably going to be a pararescue, combat search and rescue, helo team that's going to come try to get on the ground, stabilize you, get you back to the hospital as soon as possible. And so that was the majority of my mission in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In Iraq, you know, we were pulling down and, you know, we're supposed to be, we trained up a lot on, you know, medical mission. You know, we didn't know if we we're going to be busy or not. Base for our mission was like, uh, especially at night, a lot of the um, special operation groups, whether Army or Navy, were doing hits at night to capture insurgent leaders. And so we pre-positioned as close as possible to where they're doing that hit on a military base. And so if they got hurt, we'd fly in. But, you know, luckily we weren't that busy, to be honest, in Iraq. And the biggest eye-opening experience that I'll just like never forget was the disconnect of what was happening in Washington, D.C. and then what was happening in Iraq. And, you know, we're this quote unquote special operation forces and we're at Balad Air Force Base uh, just outside of Baghdad, which is one of the biggest military bases or was one of the biggest military bases in Iraq. And we got tasked with, I remember seeing a vehicle yard as far as the eye could see of Humvees and old school MRAPs, all these kind of up armored vehicles. And they say, hey, we don't want to hand these over to the Iraqi army um, and we, it's not worth the money to ship them back to the United States. And so for days, we literally just like ripped out spark plugs 
<laughs> from these vehicles. And it was just like such a lack of planning. And, you know, we're supposed to be this leading military force. And it just seemed to be complete chaos on the ground with not thinking through what we were doing. And it was just kind of heartbreaking. And at the same time, we also got to work with some of our Rocky Special Forces. And these were amazing human beings, you know. But we got to know some of them, you know, the younger officers, the CGOs, company grade officers, the lieutenants and the captains. And they just talked about the massive amounts of kind of like corruption and the higher up of their forces. And it was just like, you know, sadly, in the dark humor of being deployed, it was like, hey, we're going to be back in two years. We're going to be back in four years. You know, like, let's take bets when we're coming back to Iraq. And, you know. Wars should not be started easily and a lot of thought. And we can talk about Iraq all day, but it just really sucked being in that situation and seeing the consequences of failed policy. And then also knowing that we were likely going to be coming back in a couple of years. And so the people that we were picking up, especially Americans or Iraqis that were getting hurt, you know, we weren't stabilizing the country. We weren't figuring out how to build up a better government. And we're about to pull back out and we're probably going to be coming back in in a couple of years. And that's what really stuck with me, just that aspect of, you know, busting your butt, putting your team on the line. And sometimes that big disconnect of what's happening in Washington, D.C., however well-intentioned they are and what's actually happening on the ground. So that was my first deployment in Iraq. Then they all relocated their forces in Kuwait. I surprised two months later, uh, one of my other combat officers got hurt. So went down to Kuwait which was not busy at all. And what a big leadership lesson is when you have highly trained people, um, if you do not keep them highly engaged, they will get in trouble. <laughs> so that was my number one thing every single day was really trying to keep my 12-person uh, team highly engaged, getting ready for any type of mission. And basically our mission was if any aircraft, uh, especially uh, coalition aircraft, got shot down anywhere in the Arabian Gulf, Persian Gulf, that we were going to deploy there and pick them up. Luckily, we did not get called besides once. Um, and then finally, that was 2012, beginning of, then my quote-unquote hot deployment was to Afghanistan in later 2012. And we actually went to southern Afghanistan, which is Helmand province, which was beautiful, high mountains, but also really lush uh, valley that they have there. And that's where the majority of um, their drugs uh, come from is Helmand province. So it's heavily contested uh, Taliban territory. And, you know, 2009, 2010 was when the surge was. And that's where a lot of Marines, especially, and Brits also worked in that territory were getting hurt. And so I was coming in 2012, it was still relatively hot. And sadly, three or four months prior, uh, one of the first major base attacks had happened where the Taliban had infiltrated the base and attacked uh, a Marine Corps Harrier unit and they lost their commander. Uh, so it was a really big, you know, we're walking in, coming into that deployment, like hair on the back of our neck, kind of standing up. And, you know, that first part of my leadership side was, you know, my non-commissioned officer, again, was highly experienced. And, you know, I had a 12 person team. And literally the first day we get in theater, you have about a week handover with the other team. And we are doing our handover. We're on the flight line. We're at the actual helicopter and their senior NCO has already been there for four years. I'm sorry, four months had been in theater and you know, had all kinds of mission. And basically their mission was like, whether you're an Afghan that got hurt or whether you're an American Marine, especially, or a Brit that got hurt, we were going to come in 
uh, get on the ground, stabilize, and get you to the hospital. And, you know, some days they had 7, 10, 15 missions where those were happening. And so it's just back-to-back on a 12-hour shift. You go off alert for 12 hours, you come back on, and that's kind of your day in, day out. And so we're doing this handover, very first day in theater. You're still kind of, like, hungover from, like, the jet lag, all that kind of deal. And the senior NCO from the other team is telling us, like, hey, you know, you got to be have your spidey senses at all times. You know, he was making the argument that you can't trust anybody. Uh, and the reason why was I'm, I'm sitting here with my whole team and we're listening to the senior NCO kind of tell the story that they had just gotten a call three days before we came that a uh, the Brits, Marines, and the Taliban had gotten a firefight. And in the crossfire, an Afghan mom and her baby had been shot. And so they got scrambled uh, are the Hilo unit and the PJs and they got out there as soon as possible. And like one of the worst situations ever. So they fly in two different helicopters and one of the helicopters ends up landing and all these Afghans kind of come out from the village. And obviously when you have the helicopter on the deck, as they call it on the ground, it's super vulnerable. You know, you can't shoot that far. You don't see what's going on. Obviously you're a giant target to any type of small arms fire, RPGs, et cetera. And so the PJs got onto the ground. They have all of these Afghans coming out. You know, they don't have an interpreter with them, nor would have been helpful because it's super loud because the rotor's still going. And they do see this mom. They see this baby and wrapped up in a cloth. They see blood on the outside. And they grab those two folks. And they also grab, you have to have a male escort at the time. Their male escort was like a 10-year-old, one of her 10-year-old sons is what they thought. Anyway, they're supposed to do a thorough pat-down right, of every single person before they go on the aircraft, um, unless you're an American or uh, a British soldier. Um, but they didn't because the bigger threat they were saying was, hey, we're on the ground. We have all this Afghan community, as well as they're trying to be culturally sensitive. If you have a bunch of American men patting down an Afghan woman in front of her village, like what are the repercussions potentially when she does go back? And so they did like a really cursory, just like, pat down and check. And then she got on the aircraft and it's super loud on the aircraft. We're cramped. (laughs) You know, there's two pilots, a gunner and a flight engineer. And then you have a three person PJ team. And now you're bringing on additional people. There's other three people in the back. So it's super cramped. They're all freaking out. Uh, The Afghan mom, the son, and uh, the PJ is trying to do an exam. Uh, Looks like checks over the mom. She looks fine, but she's clutching onto the baby. And will not let go of this baby. Luckily, it's only like a 13, 14 minute flight back to the hospital. They're just trying to quickly do the examination. If they can do any help there, stabilize the baby, especially the infant. And so the mom will just not let go of the baby, you know, because, you know, they're thinking because she's terrified. She's on a loud helicopter. We have all this like MVGs on gear. We have our M4s next to us. So, you know, we don't look the most welcoming persons ever. But finally, PJ is like, hey, I got to do an assessment on the baby and ends up ripping the baby away. And when he does that from the mom, a grenade falls out. And like, thank God, you know, the pin in the grenade was not pulled. And, you know, we can I spent a lot of time thinking, I'm like, what type of situation in my life? You know, was that mom facing where that was the best decision of, you know, trying to smuggle a grenade on and blow up this helicopter and her whole family, you know, at that time. But. You know, the NCO kind of tells us that story our first day in theater, and he had already been there for four months. And I was just like, holy crap, like I was not expecting that type of story. And, you know, the type of leader you're trying to have your, 
you know, some folks argue that your job as a leader, especially a combat leader, is to get all your folks back home, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, like, wow. I'm thinking back in my head, like, I don't know how to respond to what this NCO just said and, and how to like provide this to the rest of my team. But I, I felt like this gut sense in my stomach that like, this is not the type of leadership. Like, I don't want to think that every single person here in this country is trying to kill us because I don't think we provide the best medical care, but I had no clue how to like put those to words, you know, but I knew I didn't fully agree with what the NCO was trying to convey. And so he finishes up about 20 minutes later. I have no clue what that old NCO said. You know, I'm just trying to think about when this NCO leaves, how I address my team afterwards. And the old NCO walks away and my NCO was there, uh, Sergeant Bedell. And again, this guy deployed 10 times, living legend on career field, had walked the walk. You know, those 10 deployments, he had three girls and, you know, hadn't seen a single one of them born because he was deployed during that time. You know, just the burden of, you know, two decades of war. We're already only a decade in at that point, but there's some pretty amazing sacrifices at that point. So this guy like was the pillar of our team. And when that old NCO walks away, Sergeant Padell kind of like gathers the rest of the team and just very simply says like, I don't give a shit who gets on this aircraft. You're going to treat them like they're your mom because we're Americans and that's what we do. And you know, those are short, simple words, best put by an NCO. You know, if I'd said that, I'd probably done like four or five paragraphs, but like ultimately he was making the argument that the job of a leader, you know, is not to just bring all your folks back home. It's also to bring everyone back home, having done the mission to the best part of their ability. And that might include getting them hurt and or killed, but they're trying to achieve the mission. And our motto for pararescues is that others may live. And it doesn't matter who gets on this aircraft, whether you're an Afghan, whether you're an American, whether you're a Brit, like we're going to perform the top notch medical health care that we can. And he said those words and then he walked that out for the next four months. You know, we had multiple missions where MRAPs were blown up, flipped over, <laughs> gone through, Afghans were hurt, going through IED fields that weren't fully swept and just like getting the mission done, agnostic of who the heck was on the ground that was injured. And that just, you know, really resonated and stuck with me. Um, and now we're seeing it today. You know, we have folks that come back um, from combat and, you know, they say that the biggest things they regret is not living up 100% to the ethos or trying as hard as they could have or taking care of X, Y, and Z person. And so that was my biggest quote unquote combat story that really resonates with me that I wanted to share here. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, 
the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. So Rob Disney was one of my other NCOs, another living legend in the career field, uh, non-commissioned officer. And every person, whether you're in the military or not, wants to be on a thriving team that is tackling a real problem and trying to make it better. The only way you can do that to perform at a high level is to get honest and open feedback. And holy crap, is that hard? You know, we implemented 360 feedback which was once a month, my six person PJ team, like I knew these people back and forward. Some of the bravest people I've ever known, you know, jump out of, jump out of C-130s in the middle of the night for a halo jump, you know, underwater night dive, like all kinds of like harrowing stuff, but actually sitting down and the monthly feedback sessions of saying, Hey, I'm the officer for this team. I expect all of you. What's the one thing I really suck at? Let's go around the the table and you guys tell me. And then what's the one thing I do well? And it took me three months and like people created every single excuse to like not show up to that or not to speak at that event, you know, because providing that honest feedback is not something that's, you know, in our culture, you know, and I'm not saying like harsh criticism and just blasting people, but like thoughtful saying, hey, you did this you know, when you're supposed to do why what happened, we saw that, and that's how that's affecting us. We think you can do better, and we're here to help you do better, that type of constructive feedback. But that was really hard. And so, you know, after three months, finally got normalized. And more importantly, on the servant leadership side, you know, me and my NCO really agreed that this is what we we're going to do, and we we're going to keep doing it for months until it worked. And, you know, finally, when our junior enlisted started providing feedback for us, me and the NCO, about a couple of things we needed to work on. And there's definitely things I needed to work on. And then we got up out of that room. And for that next month, we really focused on trying to fix that. At the end of the day, if you have a performance gap on your own self, like everyone's pretty smart and they know what that gap is, but they aren't either held accountable or they're empowered to fix that gap. And that was the biggest thing I saw. Like once I started working on my own stuff, you know, magically the rest of the team uh, started fixing their stuff. So that was that first lesson, how just hard it is to provide 360 feedback. But if you can really get bought in at the end of the day, you, you take your own feedback and then you work on fixing your stuff that you got to work on and how that, you know, positively ripples throughout your uh, community. But then the second thing too, is if leadership is the art of influence in a positive direction for a common goal, that concept of influence, you know, I had a couple airmen, I love them. They were great. 
But I, you know, there were some areas they needed to work on and I just could not influence them because they did not look up to me. You know, I was a younger officer and like, I tried for months, like, Hey, like you cannot show up late to this thing. Hey, you've got to wear your uniform. Right. And like time and time again, they just kept not changing it. You know, so my older team at that some point, I'm like, I'm going to use my authority. I'm going to use my, like, I'm going to start writing you up was like the path I was going down. You know, finally had an NCO that kind of sat me down and saying, Hey, like, your job is to influence them. You don't have to influence them directly. And they just ask a simple question. It's like, hey, is there any people, those two airmen that you're having issues with look up to? And I'm like, oh yeah, here's like four or five of them. They're like, well, do you have any influence or relationship with any of those four or five people they look up to? I'm like, oh, heck yeah, of course. And so I sat down with, you know, the people they look up to and said, hey, I'm seeing this gap. Do you see that gap as well? Oh, hey, can you like have a conversation with that person? And then like, lo and behold, you know, when those conversations happened between my airmen with, that were having some troubles and the MCOs they looked up to, magically those problems, you know, dissolved and magically got better. So it's just that concept where, you know, as a leader, you're supposed to own the team and own their actions and own mission accomplishment. But at the end of the day, there's multiple ways to slice that. And, you know, you never want to rely on authority, you know, as your only tool. You really want to focus on how you can positively influence your team. So those were kind of my two big um, lessons learned uh, in the military is the importance of 360 feedback and creating that environment, as well as that concept of, you know, influence doesn't have to be direct influence. It can be secondary influence to really uh, impact the mission. Yeah, I mean, the community is super small. You know, there's less than like 300, at least when I was in, there's less than 300 officers and, you know, in the five or 600 enlisted. And so I'm, and hopefully that has grown uh, since then. But in the day, that was just from our predecessors. That was earned through those quiet stories of, you know, uh, heroic actions. You know, we have Pittsburgher from from Vietnam, which, you know, went down a saved multiple pilots. But more importantly, you know, an army uh, platoon was attacked behind enemy lines and, you know, went down on a, a hoist hook like 10 times in like AK-47 fire to, to get them and come back up. And you just, you have those recurring stories where, you know, it's not a big community, but you live every single day that others may live. And people understand like, you know, that trust that we say of like, we're coming to get you, you know, no matter who you are, you know, someone's coming. And, you know, being a small part of that community where, you know, people walked out and around me and set that high bar. And you had that long history of decades of, you know, people dying or getting injured or whatever to making sure that we're going to come get you no matter what um, kind of cultivates that respect. And, you know, at the end of the day uh, allows a pilot to do their job. Hey, you know, I'm going to do some really risky stuff, but I know at least if I get shot down, the worst happens that someone's coming to get me and um, they're highly trained. And so it was awesome to be part of that small community and, and that mission set and so humbled again to serve with some really amazing folks. Yeah. So basically, you know, we have our own little hooch, you know, those little wooden structures. And that's when, you know, you've been in country too long when you have like a three level palace all built out of like plywood. That's um, random enlisted, awesome air force person has put together. Definitely probably, uh, a hazard there, but you know, we have, you know, before you come onto your shift, you get your kind of threat intel from what happened in the past 12 hours from your 
your Intel team, you kind of come together with the HA-60 pilots and their four-person crew. And obviously there's two aircraft, so there's eight of them. There's six of us. You got an officer, a comrade officer, a senior NCO, a junior NCO, and then about three airmen. And so each aircraft basically has two pilots, a gunner, a flight engineer, and then you have officer, senior NCO, airmen on lead aircraft. And then on the trail aircraft, you got a junior NCO and two airmen. And so basically now you're you're waiting for the alert to go up and you're hanging out either in the talk, which is the tactical operations center. And, you know, you have almost everything prepped on the aircraft. You have your weapon, you have your rucks, all that kind of stuff. And all you have on you in your uh, right next to the tactical operations center is your is your radios and your your tactical vests. And so, boom, the alarm goes off. You go in for that 30 second. Hey, Intel goes real quick. Hey, this is what you got. You got your nine line, basically. Hey, this is how many people. This is the perceived threat. This is where you're going. Is it going to be IED, small on fire, that kind of deal? What type of injury you're potentially going? And you're just trying to get to the aircraft as soon as possible on the helos to try to take off in five minutes. You know, we talk about that golden hour. You know, we learned a whole bunch from Iraq and Afghanistan. But long story short, if you can, you know, especially if small on fire or explosion, we have a traumatic amputation. Like if you can stop that bleed, you know, slow that bleed down and then get them to higher level care, which is us, and then get them that PJ team or medevac team, get them to the hospital within one hour, they're like five times more likely to survive. So that that golden hour is really crucial. And that's why like we're trying to shave off seconds. And so, you know, one of our first missions in Afghanistan was, you know, doing a lot of partner force missions. And so they had, um, we got this call that literally just like two miles outside the wire of our base in Helmand province, a um, Afghan partner national force with one or two Marine, Marine Corps advisors, uh, one of the MRAPs had gotten blown up. And these are like 14 ton vehicles, like, you know, they're trying to mine resistant <laughs> ambush protected vehicles, like some major armor. It got blown 15 feet off the road. So like imagine the amount of ordnance that had to be in that IED and flipped it over to its side. And so they called us out. So we're spinning up and it's really bad that, you know, the worst thing, especially for helo pilots, you know, on night vision goggles, is they had that really fine talcum powder in Afghanistan. And it's basically called a brownout. So just like as you kind of come down, it kind of poofs up and you can't see anything, can't see orientation. And so like obviously the helo pilots, like all internal uh, mechanisms to land the aircraft. And we had made the decision um, to put in our trail bird. So our junior NCO first, so we could stay above. We were kind of worried about maybe a potential ambush there. And so we wanted the lead aircraft to kind of direct things as needed because there's other aircraft in the area. So we wanted the, the lead pilot and the lead NCO and lead officer in the air. And so we put our junior NCO on the ground with his two airmen. And, you know, in the panic, they were supposed to clear out the uh, the IED field um, <laughs> for us. They had not done it appropriately. And they told us like halfway through the PJ team walking through. Uh, luckily, no one was injured. They got there. And like you just said, this, everyone, the MRAP had been protected as in the hatch was fully closed, but that type of explosion where you're a 14 ton vehicle gets blown 15 feet off the road and gets flipped upside down. There was some pretty gruesome carnage on the inside. Um, and so, you know, the PJ NCO was telling us like, holy crap, we need you, the other team on the ground, cause they need some more medics there and some more stretchers. 
And so there was some alive folks. And so, you know, we're pulling them out, uh, you know, from those type of explosions, you have a lot of trauma to the, the lungs and the airway. And so our PJ team was, you know, fast at work, stabilizing them. You know, we're there, sadly, when the MRAP had gotten blown up, we're pulling people out and get, getting them stabilized. And, you know, the partner forces, obviously, they're seeing their buddies getting pulled out of these vehicles. They're trying to provide security. The couple of people are still alive. You know, there's a lot of amounts of distress during that time. But, you know, luckily, we were able to get four of the Afghans uh, stabilized and um, on the helicopter and back um, to the hospital within uh, 25 minutes uh, from detonation of the IED. And, you know, four people were able to survive that. But seeing that type of carnage of what a massive IED can do uh, was always pretty harrowing. And especially in the middle of the night with low moon loom and, uh, you know, our helicopters not being able to see that great as you land in those type of environments. So that was that one mission that really stuck with me just about, you know, what it was like to be on call and trying to get there as quick as possible. And, and you know, letting a junior NCO lead the way and did a great job in that type of situation. And that's why that training is so crucial. Like, hey, junior NCO, you are 24 years old and you're going to go in this, you know, really harrowing environment leading two other airmen, which is their first deployment. And you got to direct this chaos once you get on the ground with very little information and very little actual eyesight of what's going on around you. And he, you know, he came through with colors and did a wonderful job of doing that. So it was great to, you know, where else in the world can a 24 year old person have that type of responsibility and successfully step up and achieve that type of stuff. So I had the unique, and it's not always the same, but, you know, went through indoctrination course, went through my two years of pipeline uh, with these, with several of these folks. And then just so happened that we all went to Moody Air Force Base together, which happened to be one of the larger PJ bases. Then I went through green team, pre-deployment training and deployment with these. So like, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but like you could be in a dark room and like you kind of like know by their breathing who they are just because you spent that much time in, in dark circumstances. And uh, probably shouldn't share this story, but I know uh, you'll get a laugh out of this one. It's always my frame of reference of like, hey, no matter what I'm doing now, I'm like, it couldn't be that bad. So everything is like better than that moment. So this is like my frame of reference. I can, I could bear everything against. But we're in the pool and like one of the last events they have us do. So we do these underwaters. You have to swim 25 meters underwater. You have to swim 50 meters underwater. You have a weight belt on. You got to tread water. So your legs are exhausted and you're sitting in a pool. And the last thing they have you do is something called crossovers or underovers. You have a weight belt on, you have fins on, you have a mask on, and you have like 10 or 15 people on each side of the pool going widthwise, not lengthwise. And you have to go down to the bottom and like one team swims at the bottom, holds their breath. The other team swims above them. But half the time you're getting kicked in the face. People are freaking out. You got to come back up and you get like two seconds rest. You got to come back again. You got to remember like if you're high, low, people start doing stupid stuff, run to each other, all that kind of deal. And honestly, the whole time you're just praying like, I really hope someone quits or freaks out so you can get like a 10 second or 20 second breather, you know, at the top, you're just praying. And so, but when you come up and remind, we're like in these little brown t-shirts and cause it's the pool, you don't want any drag. So you, you have like the tightest little medium shirts on that we have and we have black speedos on, you know, and we come up and as soon as you come up, 
they tell us to get nut to butt, which is you're on like the side of the pool gunnel and you got to get as close to your buddy as possible. And then the other buddy has to get close to you as possible again, you know? And we've been in this pool for like four or five hours. And the last thing you want is to cramp. And so we're just like down in water every chance we get, you know? And so the guy behind me, Sean's his name. And he was like, I got to pee. And I was like, I don't care. I'm so exhausted. <laughs> and so he starts peeing and I'm like, Hey, that's like, it's, we've been in a pool and it's like 65 degrees, 70 degrees. It's cold. You're cold after four hours. I'm like, in back of my head, I'm like, Hey, that, that actually kind of feels good. Like, Oh my God. And then I'm like, Oh my God, I have to pee. And so I tap my buddy in front of me. I'm like, dude, I got to pee. <laughs> so he's like, I don't care. And so like I pee and I pause there and I'm like, have an out of body moment experience. I'm like, Oh my God, what have they done to us where this is like a moment of bliss where someone else is freaking out. So we actually get a 20 second break and grown men are peeing in the pool and it's like a delightful experience. And so like you have those type of experiences <laughs> and I'll tell one last story uh, talking about camaraderie. And so again, I love the military. I love the academy, love the PJ teams because you get people from all over you know, as a young kid, I was, you know, a kid from the mountains of East Tennessee. And one of the guys on my team was from Boston and had his Lavoie and had that Boston accent. And fast forward to one of our last phases in our two-year pipeline, it's called tactics. So like you're going through different areas and like, you know, moving with a team, shoot, move, communicate kind of deal. And the last exercise, we got ambushed and our team got scattered. And now for like two days, you have buddy pairs and you got to kind of like move at night and move in day to like certain checkpoints. And you got to hide. You got people trying to find you. So kind of like search and evasion kind of stuff. And it's in the high mountains of New Mexico. And it's like December, January. And it was awful. It was like the exact worst where you have like that sleet, snow, rain. It's like 33 degrees, you know. And so we put all of our like sleeping bag and stuff and like plastic bags to try to protect. But it just like sleeted on us for like two days. And so at this point in time, like everything that we have is soaking wet. You don't have anything that's dry. And now at night, it drops down to the 20s. And so the first night, like me and Lavoy are so wet that we just literally had to walk around in a circle for like 10 hours to like keep our body heated up so we didn't freeze to death. And so then we had to move the whole next day. And so we get to our next checkpoint that whole day. Again, it's sleeted. And so we're in the exact same situation as the night before. And I'm like, oh my God, we have to walk in a circle for another 10 hours. And I was like, no, I'm like, well, boy, like we're doing something else. And so this is my first, literally my first uh, order as an officer in the military. Uh, Lavoie was like, I'm like, hey, man, like the only way is for us to like cuddle and like have body heat. It's the only way chance we can like get some sleep tonight. And he was like, no, like no way, sir. Like in his Boston accent, like no way, no how. I'm like, let me rephrase this. Like we are cuddling. I will give you an option if you want to be big spoon or little spoon. And I will, you know, I will never tell you which one he chose, but let's say he, we did cuddle that night and we finally got some sleep <laughs> as you're cuddling in the high mountains of New Mexico. And so like, that is the type of camaraderie that you're going on these deployments with. I mean, the brotherhood at that time was just everything to you. And that's why, you know, this is an enlisted guy. And yes, there's a rank structure, but it was, you know, you really had to lead on your values and there was no hiding you know, you couldn't be someone off duty that you were on duty and vice versa. And that was the biggest draw to that team in the PJ world, special operations overall, was just how closely knit you were with the uh, the enlisted. 
But actually, that was a little bit of a, as we talk about transition, Ken, that was one of the biggest hurdles. It took me almost two years that when, you know, uh, the first hurdle was I did not think I could serve outside of uniform. I thought you had to wear a uniform to serve. And that really prevented me for like two years of like, holy crap, there's so much need and hurt and pain in this world that like, there's so many thousands of different ways. But since I was 10 years old, I was like, military is service. That is the best type of service. And that's the main way to serve. And so I almost, you know, it took me two years to finally like pull my head out of my butt and realize there's other ways to serve. And then the second thing too, I was really, you know, I spent a whole time of reflection was I was like, holy crap, I will never ever have a chance in my life to be nearly as connected to someone as I was on the PJ team because I'm not going to go through this ridiculous training or through combat. And yes, that is one way to make really close relationships. But, you know, I spent the past decade realizing there's other ways to really create those other connections. And I know, you know, a lot of my veteran buddies, they miss the community, they miss the purpose, the other center purpose, and they miss the growth that happened while they're in the military. And when you get out, you feel like you don't have that community anymore. You feel like you don't have that purpose sometimes. You don't feel like you're growing. And so that community was the major aspect that you and I can, you know, we talk about all the time. But that was a big hurdle I've taken the past decade is like, how do you recreate those relationships that you had in the military? And this sounds really silly and whatever, but it's like being open and vulnerable about your faults. You know, if you've ever been around a person that says, man, I did this and this is the hardest part of my life, you automatically feel connected with that. And, you know, it took me a lot, long time to kind of share my, my own faults and me being able to do that with several other veterans that I didn't even know, uh, during the service, but afterwards has allowed me to recreate some of those relationships like I had on the PJ team and really kind of recreate that pillar. So I know I'm taking a left turn, but you know, I love the camaraderie I had on the PJ team, but I got out and I had no tool or mechanism or understanding on how to get back. I always felt like I was looking back for two years of, I can never serve again. I can never get back to that point when I wasn't forward looking to saying, how can I recreate those same relationships with the people around me there's a bunch of hurt around me. How can I go use those relationships to go serve people around me? Yeah, you know, I've been in this space. And so, you know, real quick, Ken knows that uh, once I got out, served with Team Rubicon overseas for a while. That's how I met Ken and then got into uh, being a staffer in Congress. And that's what I worked on transition kind of day in and day out. And just, you know, writ large, again, amazing people in the DOD, amazing people in the VA, but we have still this structural massive gap where DOD, rightly so, their mission is to send people to war. You have VA saying, hey, our job is healthcare. And then boom, you have a transitioning veteran, you know, and 50% of veterans don't go into VA healthcare for a no host of reasons. But now you have all these veterans that don't have community, don't have purpose, and don't have, um, you know, this concept of growth every day that they had in the military. And now only if they start having some pretty bad PTSD issues or addiction issues, then they're like, oh, they can get inside the VA healthcare system, which is like, holy crap. Hey, DOD, I'm not saying it's your primary mission, but it should have to be one of your missions, tertiary, secondary mission to make sure your veterans and your service members and their spouses have a successful transition. And I fully agree that should be a public private option, but when we are losing, you know, X amount of veterans, whether it's 17 or 22 each day, like no one is benefiting from that. But more importantly too, you know, as you and I can fully agree, like 
if we can equip our service members and their spouses and their kids as they transition to be leaders in their communities, they're going to do better. Their skill sets are going to be brought to the community and that concept of second service. And so, you know, some of the most effective programs that's just starting to get built up that I think is freaking perfect is something called SkillBridge, which is, you know, six months before you get out, you know, you and I both had terminal leave. You're kind of sitting there twiddling your thumbs, really not doing much. Uh, with your last couple of months, especially you have a bunch of leave. And now SkillBridge is that great concept where six months as an active duty soldier or airman, et cetera, you're able to go to another company, a private company and do an internship and say, hey, is this something that you want to do? Awesome. And they, you're getting your DOD paycheck while you're getting this real world experience to see, is this what you want in the private sector? And if so, do you need more education? Do you need more internships, et cetera? And so DOD is getting a lot better in this space, but I think what we're still failing on and we have a massive network out there is, you know, you don't have many people in the world that know what veterans went through, you know, and also know the civilian world. And so the people that do know that are veterans that have made a successful transition. And I don't think we're tapping into their skill set. I know I would love to be on some random list that says, hey, if you're in Maryland or D.C. and you want to go into politics, which is what I'm in now, like I would love to be a mentor to any transitioning service member. We have this like untapped potential because that's the biggest thing is someone that knows where you're coming from and knows where you want to go to and can, can provide that kind of steady mentorship about how you're getting there. And hey, guess what? transitioning service member, like I was you four years ago, you know, here's a little bit of hope that you can get through any challenges that you have, whether PTSD, et cetera, and you can find another way to serve and kind of expedite the learning loop. You know, it took me two years to realize that. And I wish I would had some more mentors on the other side of that before I even got out. So I think the DOD is moving in the right direction, but without a doubt, they have a role on empowering our service members. And we talk about it every single day, but you know, our greatest generation, multiple reasons why that happened was, but there was this society expectation, societal expectation, because so many people served that they were needed back home in their communities. And that's why so many of that expectation was met with so many service members stepped up in their communities, whether as mayors, whether as doctors, whatever, um, because of that expectation. And I think we can do a whole lot better as a society to wrap our veterans and service members and their families as they transition to say, hey, we need you back home. We thank you for your service, and now we need your service again back home. That was Captain Tom Smith. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.